You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're beginning a new study from the book of Psalms. We're calling On the Road to Worship. With this week's message, here's shepherding pastor Joe Cook. I bet you've been somewhere on a trip or work. For some reason, you've been somewhere and you said the words either out loud or deep inside your soul, I just want to go home. (laughs) One of my earliest experiences of deep homesickness took place after I graduated from high school. A lot of my friends were going off to college. Now, I'll be honest, I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do at college. I mean, I was just as lost as I could be about some of that stuff. But they were going to college, and I liked them, so I wanted to go to college, and I wanted to go where they went. So they were all going to OSU. I grew up in the southern part of Oklahoma, and so that was all the way across the state. And in the course of the summer between, from graduating high school to there, I was selected to play in an all-state football game. Now, don't be too impressed. It was eight-man football, okay? So it's not like, wasn't like Ryder or something like that. Um, But I injured myself. I was hit from the side, blew out my knee. And about a week after the game, I found myself laying on an operating table and and having my knee worked on. And that meant I was going to start college on crutches with an immobilization brace. And suddenly that campus got a lot bigger. My town was so small that the, the two dormitories that I lived in had as many people in them as my whole town. And then that campus was so huge and trying to find class and I found myself disoriented. I found myself confused, and I just wanted to go home because at home, I was safe. There were people there that had my back. The food was normal. (laughs) My bed was familiar. It was a place where I was provided for, and I just wasn't ready to leave home yet. And, you know, there's different reasons that we get homesick. And for the last 2,000 years, Christians have sometimes expressed that they just want to be home, and they've adopted this idea of being pilgrims. And oftentimes we think of heaven as home. Oftentimes home is, is connected to a place, and that's not wrong. If you look up the definition of home, it's going to say the place you reside. But it's more than that, isn't it? Home's a whole lot more than that. And what we're going to be studying as we go through the songs of ascent is we're going to be learning how people tune their hearts to have an encounter with God, and what we're going to learn is that home is much less about where, it is, where you go as it is about who is there. So the first thing I want us to do is look at this as a biblical mindset. I want to direct your attention to Hebrews 13, verse 14. We read this, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians that your citizenship is in heaven, so we really do belong somewhere else. This idea of a place where we're safe, where we're secure, where we're known and understood, it's not going to happen here. And so it's appropriate for pilgrim Christians to have this mentality. I really like the way the New Living Translation uses, uh, translates this verse. Look at what they say. For this world is not our permanent, and there's our word, home. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. This deep longing for home it brings out the heart of this series that we're connecting, that we're beginning today. The Psalms of Ascent. It's 15 different psalms that have been collected over a period of centuries by Hebrews, and they would use these as they would go up to their pilgrim festivals. There was three times a year 
that every able-bodied Hebrew male had to make a trip to Jerusalem. Now, I want you to think about it. Depending on where you are in the nation of Israel, some people may only have to go a few miles, and some people may have to travel all the way across the country. So let's refresh our memory about what this is, and then we're going to talk about, as we go through the message today, how these psalms tune their heart for this encounter with God. And we're going to find out that wherever God is, that's home. So what I want you to do first is just look at where Jerusalem sits. It sits on a hill. Why do we call it a psalm of ascent? That word ascent means going up. Sometimes people call it the psalms of going up, okay? Notice the topography. This was done by a painter in the 18, oh, around 1840. He went to the land of Israel and he walked around and took sketches, came back and made these lithographs. And what we learn about Israel is no matter where you are, at some point you're going to go down and then you got to go back up. So Jerusalem, you always go up to Jerusalem. Here's a couple more. No matter which way you come at it, Jerusalem is surrounded by three cliffs. And I think there is a, a lesson in that. You know, anytime you approach God, you're, you're going up. It's, a, it's an ascent. And so three times a year, these people would have to up in their lives and make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Do you remember what the three feasts are? Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Passover takes place in April, about the time that we have Easter. Every Passover, they celebrate how God delivered them. There was a time in Israel's life where they were slaves, and God came down and he set them free with many mighty works, and he drew them out. He drew them out. He was their deliverer. And so at Passover, notice, they celebrate God's deliverance. So once a year, every year, they're going to go up to Jerusalem, up to where God is. And as they go, they're going to sing these psalms of ascent to prepare their heart for this celebration. God's our deliverer. And then the second one is Pentecost. Now, originally, it was a, it was a feast regarding their, their harvest time. It's about 50 days later after Passover, around our April-May time, okay? And what they would do, or I'm sorry, May-June is about the time that it takes place. And there they're celebrating that God's been faithful to, you know what, to their covenant. Their covenant at, at Sinai was, if you do this, I'll do this. And part of that was a bountiful harvest. And what we learn is they celebrate that God is faithful to their covenant. And now, in centuries since then, that's what they do is they read back through the law and they see what God had promised and they celebrate that. And then finally, the last feast is the Feast of Tabernacles, sometimes called the Feast of Booze. Even now in Israel, if you go over there during this time around September or October, you're going to see people sitting under these little makeshift booths with palm leaves over them. And they're remembering the journey from Egypt to the Promised Land and God provided for them. So look at these three ideas, deliverance, covenant, and provision. Somebody's protecting me. Someone's loving me. It's a secure love, and I have what I need. What's that sound like? Home. That's where you find those things is home. And some of you are sitting here saying, Joe, I've never had a home like that. I know that's the case for a lot of people, but here's what I would tell you. You, more than anyone else, should understand the longing of the people of Israel as we go through this. Because even if you haven't experienced home, a home like that, there's something inside of us that says, that's the kind of home I want. That's the kind of place that I want to be. 
So let's join the people, ancient people of Israel in these psalms of ascent and see where they lead us and how they tune our hearts. So if you would, open your Bibles to Psalm 120. The psalms of ascent start in 120 and go through 134. And this first one, as they begin this journey, what we're going to see is that there's a very special catalyst that takes place, something that as they begin this journey, they're going to remind themselves of. Look at what we read here in Psalm 120, a song of ascent. By the way, that heading, that's part of Scripture, it's there for a reason. We need to read it and think about it. And we read this, In my distress I called to Yahweh, and he answered me. Verse 2, Deliver me, O Yahweh, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. The psalmist is crying out to God for something. He's distressed about something. He tells us what it is. You know what he's distressed about? Lying, deceitfulness. You know, that's something that we could probably relate to. He was in a culture of deceitfulness and lying, and I think we can connect, can't we? In 2004, a man by the name of Ralph Keyes wrote a book. The title of the book is The Post-Truth Era. That title says an awful lot. We're in a time and age where people play fast and, loose, fast and loose with the truth. And in that book, he makes this comment, post-truthfulness exists in an ethical twilight zone. An ethical twilight zone. It's a pretty good description. I know not all of you, especially the younger folks, are familiar with the TV show The Twilight Zone. But the idea there is that the world's not as it appears. Upside, it's up, up is down, down is up, that kind of thing. It was this bizarre show where you never knew what to expect, and he's saying that our world is an ethical twilight zone. We don't really know what people mean when they say things. We have people that use words like, my truth. (laughs) My truth, your truth. No, there's just truth. Truth, by its very definition, is singular. By its very definition, there's not an alternate truth. When we say my truth, we're, it's, it's, it's illogical. And yet that's what we see in our world today. We play games with words. Keyes goes on to say this. We no longer tell lies. Instead, we misspeak. We exaggerate. We exercise poor judgment. Mistakes were made, we say. The term deceive gives way to the more playful spin. Have you heard that word? used? What's your spin on it? What's your take on it? What's this news? How's the news side on the left going to spin this? How's the news side on the right going to spin this? Yeah, we, we play games with truth. We have perfectly manicured photos that we put on Facebook. We're all our own press agents. We have this age of selfies where we take these pictures of ourselves that we carefully pose and then we filter it to get rid of all the blemishes and and add brightening to our eyes or whatever it is. We're in a deceptive age. Resumes. I was trying to look up what percentage of resumes are lied on and depending on which research study you found, it's anywhere from 50 to 75% of people lie when they apply for a job on the resume or during the process. Is a broad range, but the, the point was lying's rampant. It takes place all the time, and so much so that it seems to become the norm. And I don't know about you, but sometimes people that I expect to be truthful, I find out they've lied to me. 
Maybe it's a leader. Maybe it's a preacher. Maybe it's a, an ethical teacher that's supposed to be out there, and I, I think they're truthful, and then I find out that they've been scandalized, and I cry out, who can I trust? <laughs> and he's right. <laughs> and you know what? When I process that question, who can I trust, that's where I go back. I go back to being a little boy in a little church in southern Oklahoma, and someone told me the story about God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I wasn't smart enough at that age to go and dig into, okay, can I trust this book? Can I re- I'm going to read all these books on apologetics and, and how I can trust the scripture. And No, at seven or eight years old, when I heard that, something inside of me stirred. I've learned since then it was the Holy Spirit moving on me. But all of my inner being said, that's true. And for the last 46 years, I've been unfaithful, I've been deceitful, but my God has never been. Jesus has never deceived me. He's never changed. He's never varied from what he said. I have someone I can trust. I hope you do too. If you're here this morning and you hear these words, and maybe for the first time you feel that stirring and you hear the pressure, you feel the pressure and the drawing and the wooing of the Holy Spirit, I would invite you to place your faith in Him. It's it's simple. It's so simple a child can do it. I did it at eight. Now, I've read a lot of those books since then, but it's only strengthened my confidence in Him. I have someone to trust. The psalmist is preparing their hearts, reminding them, We have someone we can trust. Look at verse 1 again with me of Psalm 120. In my distress, I called to... Did you notice how I read that earlier? Yahweh. I said Yahweh. I didn't say the Lord. I bet your translation has capital L-O-R-D. Did you catch the introduction video? There was a man there singing. He's singing one of the psalms. In fact, he's singing the psalm that we're going to be teaching next week. Psalm 121, and in that psalm, you heard the singer say the name Yahweh three times at different intervals. God gave these people his name. He gave them the name Yahweh. About 400 or 500 B.C., the people of Israel started wondering, you know what, we need to be careful not to take the Lord's name in vain. So maybe not everybody should be saying the name of God. You know, he gave us his name, but we got to be careful. So maybe just the priest should say it. And then pretty soon, uh, maybe only the chief priest should say it. And then pretty soon, you know what? Nobody should say it. And now, even in Israel today, you'll hear them refer to Hashem, the name. Now, I have no reason to question their sincerity and their desire to be reverent. But as Ron Allen said last year during our our Seder dinner, it's kind of reverence on steroids. You know, it's, it's misplaced reverence, I would say. If you were to come to my house and you walked in and you heard me go up to my wife, Lynette, and say, Mrs. Cook... Um, I was wondering, would you join me for dinner tonight? Well, yes, Mr. Cook, I would love to join you for dinner tonight. You would think, these people are weird. (laughs) This is very strange. You see, when I met Lynette and I told her my name, there's nothing I love better than hearing her say my name. When I hear a friend call me and say, hey, Joe, I like it when people know my name. You see, when you give someone your name, it speaks It speaks of intimacy, and this name is special, Yahweh, 
It's the covenant name. It means I am who I am. I'm unchanging. You can depend upon me. And as those pilgrims were traveling towards Jerusalem, as they're traveling towards that place to meet with God, these Psalms would remind them we have a personal God. And when you have a personal crisis, guess what you need? You need a personal God. That name Yahweh, when I feel like the world is uncertain, I have someone who's certain. When the world is cruel, I have someone who loves me. If you go and you read Exodus 34, 6, and 7, it tells us Yahweh is compassionate, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. In a world that's cruel, I need Yahweh. He's given us his name, and I believe he wants us to use it. It's not just my idea share a quote with you from John, Mo- John Mark Comer's book, God Has a Name. I love this book, learned a lot from it. He writes this, I would argue that we need to get back to calling God by his name. I think the gradual shift from calling God Yahweh to using the title the Lord says something about the human condition. For all our talk about a personal relationship with Jesus, there's a part of us that's scared of the intimacy with God. We see the fire and smoke up the mountain, and we shrink back in fear. And that's all the more reason to learn to use his name. He gave it to us, and he wants us to use it. I've been practicing this in my own life. I love this psalm. You know it. It begins, we all say it, the Lord is my shepherd. But you know what? That's not what it says. Yahweh is my shepherd. Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. When I'm worried, when I'm stressed, when I'm feeling like a little lost lamb, you know what? My shepherd has given me his name. My shepherd has said, you can call me by name. Yahweh is my shepherd. And then you get to the end of that psalm. And one day it tells us we will dwell in the house of the Lord. No, in the house of Yahweh. He's told us his name. He's invited us to his house. And he's saying, I want you to be with me. Comer continues on and he says this, Jesus took this even one step further. He taught us to call God Father, the most intimate relational name there is. And you know what? Comer's right, but I would add, not only did he say to call him Father, he said call him Abba, which is equivalent to our our Papa. And do you know where you find a good Papa? Home. What I want you to see in these psalms and in these words and in the things we're meditating on, these psalms, they were to be sung. I don't know if you're old enough to remember when there were no iPads or phones to entertain your kids on the road, but oftentimes we would sing songs, row, row, row your boat or, you know, something like that with your kids. These were the songs that they would sing to prepare their heart and prepare their own hearts and their kids' heart because we're going to the place where we're going to meet with God and we're going to remember he delivered us. We're going to remember that he provided for us and he's offered us this covenant of love. Because you see, home is less about where we're going and more about who is there. And they were traveling to meet the God of the universe. Now, the psalmist is going to turn his attention from the vertical, thinking about God, to verse 3 and 4. He's going to look around him at this group of people that are causing the distress. Look at what he says in verse 3. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? He's talking to those who are the source of the deceitfulness. And verse 4 answers that question. 
a warrior's sharp arrow with glowing coals of the broom tree. Now, there's something very subtle going on here that it's easy for us to miss. The question is, is what's going to happen to all these people that are causing the world to be so filled with deceit? I bet you've asked that question. I bet you've looked at the dishonesty in reporting. I bet you've looked at the dishonesty in leadership, whether it's in the nation or in a church or in your local area, wherever, and you've gone, what's going to happen to them? This verse reminds us that God will mete out perfect justice, not retribution. This idea of the tongue is a major metaphor in Scripture. Jeremiah tells us this, and hang on with me for a second, because there's kind of a cool connection here to verse 4. Their tongue is a deadly arrow. Arrow, get that? It speaks deceitfully. With his mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart, he plans an ambush for him. That's Jeremiah. James does this, James 3. And the tongue, there's the tongue again, it's a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among the members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course, and set on fire by hell. So two metaphors, fire, fire and an arrow. And look at how verse 4 answers. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? How much is going to be done to these who have been deceitful? A warrior's sharp arrow and glowing coals of the broom tree. Perfect justice. Every human being that's ever lived is going to get one of two things from God at the end of time. You're either going to get perfect justice, exactly what you deserve, or you're going to get grace. I recommend, while it is the age of grace, that you accept His grace. If you didn't do that a few minutes ago, I would invite you to do it now. This verse 3 and 4, it's a note of justice. The Hebrews had this idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and we use that to talk about revenge, and that's not what it was about. It's about let the punishment fit the crime, and that's what we have here in 3 and 4. The people that are deceitful, they're not getting away way with it. You don't need to focus so much on the lies and the liars. you got to trust God. And so as they're moving towards their God to meet with him in that special place, there is justice, there is God, and I can rest in that. So then we come to the end of this short psalm, 5, 6, and 7. Look at that with me. We read, Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, and I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I'm for peace. But when I speak, they are for war. So there's a couple of words here I want to bring out that are interesting. Woe. <laughs> we don't use that word very much anymore. Do you notice how it starts there in verse 5? Woe. Woe is me. Woe to me. It's a somber, serious note. I'm tired. I'm weary. I'm in trouble. I'm surrounded by enemies. We don't know who Kedar and Mishik are. Those are names that don't mean anything to us. They were some barbaric tribes that surrounded them at one point in their history, but they came to represent all of their enemies. I'm surrounded by them. But notice the difference. There's a progression. I sojourn in Meshach, and then catch the next one. I dwell. There's a difference there. Sojourn is a pilgrim word. We're in the covered wagon, and we're going out west, Okay. And that's, that's a temporary shelter. We're not going to stay anywhere too long as we're going out there. But dwell, it has, has the idea of settle. It has the idea of stopping and maybe building a permanent shelter. 
It's almost like the psalmist is saying, why am I still here? Why am I not moving forward anymore? I dwell among the tents of Kedar. What? Why am I here? Look at verse 6. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. And the word peace is shalom, and it means a whole lot more than the absence of conflict. Shalom means wholeness, completeness. Where are you supposed to find that? Home, right? He's saying, why am I here? Why, why am I still dwelling and sitting and settling here? I'm for peace. Deep down, I want peace. But you know the reality is sometimes we get comfortable in a culture of deceit. Sometimes we learn to play the game. Sometimes we learn to bring it to our advantage, partly because it's all we've ever known. It's easy to start thinking about, well, how can I make this little place on the prairie a little bit better? And you start building it up a little bit, and we get desensitized to what's going on. Eugene Peterson wrote a book about the Psalms of Ascent, and he picks up this idea that the psalmist is really kind of saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's an awakening in this first psalm. This is not where I'm supposed to be staying. This is not where I'm supposed to be settling. And he writes this, as long as we think the next election might eliminate crime and establish justice or another scientific breakthrough might save the environment or another pay raise might push us over the edge of anxiety into a life of tranquility. Have you ever had those thoughts? We're not likely to risk the arduous, arduous uncertainties of the life of faith. You know what he's saying? When things get bad enough here, then we might risk this life of faith. And I love the next line. A person has to get fed up with the ways of the world before he, before she, acquires an appetite for the world of grace. Sometimes we have to get fed up. I think that's what this note here is. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. Perhaps they had grown comfortable, and now they realize I shouldn't grow comfortable. James picks this up. I'm going to, you don't need to turn there. I'm going to read to you what James said. Pretty pointed language from James. <coughs> he writes this, you adulterous people. Now think about this. Adulterous people are those who have cheated on their covenant, right? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy with God. Have we gotten friendly with this world of deceptiveness? Have we left that covenant? Because remember where home is? Covenantal love. <coughs> Covenantal love, peace, protection. That's what these songs are designed to draw us to. Where are you placing your hope? Is it in this world of deceptiveness? So this first song, what has it done? It's worked in us. It's worked in our heart to draw us to this idea of where home is. It's not about a place. It's about a person. Do you know we're about 30 days out from Resurrection Sunday, from Easter? And we have chosen these psalms of ascent to help you prepare your heart. I'm going to invite you to do something with us. There's 30 days. There's 15 Psalms of Ascent. You could read through them twice, just reading one a day. One of them is only four verses, okay? And when you read through it, I'm going to invite you to use the name of Yahweh. Use that name. Use that covenantal name. And recognize that these Psalms are designed to tune your heart to meet with Him. 
And I hope that as you hear this, that you're not hearing an escapism mentality, because that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about pie in the sky, by and by. One of these days, if we suffer long enough, then we're going to get to go to heaven. No, I'm talking about a, catch this, a pilgrim paradigm. A pilgrim paradigm, a mentality. The word paradigm has this idea of a worldview, of recognizing this is my sojourning place. I'm here not as a tourist, not as a tourist. I'm here as a pilgrim with purpose. And I have the opportunity to call people along with me to join me in this journey towards home. And the beauty is, as we move towards Resurrection Sunday, we have an even better name. We have the name above all names, the name above every name, the name of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. Guess what they provide for us? Deliverance, covenant, and provision. The ultimate deliverance, the ultimate covenant, the new covenant, the covenant of the heart, and the ultimate provision himself to indwell you. That's what we're moving towards, that relationship. That relationship is home. So I invite you to make this journey with us. We're going to do something sort of unique today. I'm going to call the worship team up now, which is good because I'm about to lose my voice, right? As they come up, I'm going to show you one more slide, okay? I really want us to start thinking about that these psalms were to be sung. The purpose of music is to tune our hearts and minds together so that we can have this meeting with Yahweh. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.